Yeah, the GHOP team is you know, really sponsoring this event, and they're leading all the worship. So a lot of these teams are in the GHOP during the week, and you can be part of that worship. And so do take advantage of it. You know, my first time I read anything about Bible prophecy, end-time stuff, was Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth. How many of you guys read that book a long time ago? Back in the 70s. And ever since then, I had a real interest in Bible prophecy and really studying it. And I went on to seminary and, and got a master's degree in theology, and still I had these gaps and that I really weren't convinced of what, how they fit in biblical prophecy. And not long ago, I, I picked up a book entitled The Islamic Antichrist. And I thought, this guy's got it all wrong. And then I read the book and thought, where's this guy been all my life? <laughs> and then, I read, then I read the book, The Mideast Beast. I read the book, when, when a Jew rules the world. How's it go? When a Jew rules the world. And I thought, I wish every Christian on planet Earth would read those books. Now, last year, I talked about a little bit about Mystery Babylon, and I leaned real heavily on some of the work that Joel had done on that. Now he's got a book, Mystery Babylon, you can buy uh, tonight as well. So I really, you know, you never heard me push a lot of books up here, but I wish you guys would buy all those books and read them all. I really think they're worth it. It's a, it's a great pleasure to have Joel here. He is, a, is an excellent student of the Bible. He's a humble guy. He really is, I think, part of what God is raising up. God's given us insight in these last days, filling our gaps so we really understand how things are coming, so we can be ready, so we can be the kind of praying church and the kind of out evangelistic church. And church has a heart for the unreached peoples, and church has a heart for Israel in these strategic days. And so it is a great pleasure to have Joel with us, and I want to say a prayer. Uh, just uh, So let's just, i tell you what, one more time, stand up and just extend your hands this direction. Lord, we thank you for Joel. We thank you, Lord, that uh, he belongs to you. He is your servant, and he's glad to be your mouthpiece. He's not interested in his reputation coming here tonight. He just wants to be used by you. And, Lord, we just want to hear from you. And uh, we also, we're, we're also, Lord, we admit we're not real impressed with, with men anywhere and women anywhere. We just want to hear from you, and we thank you for a servant who's willing to be used by you. We pray for the anointing of your spirit to bring that to pass. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everybody says. Good evening. That was a perfect introduction because I find that it's very easy for me to not impress people. Is Nate, is Nate here that, that came with us? So was your first thought when you met me, man, he's a lot shorter than I thought. <laughs> yeah, that's like pretty much of all the things that people say when they first meet me is they always go, wow, you're a lot shorter than I thought. I think it's like, that's probably number one. But of course, Nate says that to a lot of people. <clears throat> I just want to begin just uh, obviously by thanking Grace uh, at large, just for the invitation, Pastor Gary, Pastor Tom, and just all the leaders, um, thank you very much. I never take the um, people entrusting their pulpit, entrusting their pulpit to me, I never take that lightly, so I promise that I will keep the heresy at a minimum uh, for the next couple of days, and, um, and I think we'll have a, a good time. I decided that um, I want to begin tonight with some very basic introductory information. And I think you'll see as we go through why it's important to lay a bit of a groundwork before we really jump in. Listen, the end times, I'll tell you, um, as someone who's been traveling all over the world and teaching on the end times, and it's sort of become my, my niche uh, of teaching, and I never really intended that to be the case, and I've written a handful of books, um, I can tell you that the issue of the end times is a topic that it can, it, it, it's so dangerous when flaky, unbalanced Christians get a hold of it. And it's a topic that requires maturity and sobriety, and if you don't get all of the basic stuff down, basic Christianity 101 down first, in a lot of ways, we're best just to sort of leave the whole issue of the end times alone until we get uh, some of the fundamentals down first. 
Nevertheless, it is absolutely essential, foundational, and basic to the Christian message and to the gospel. Um, and so this is important that mature believers gather together around this topic. Um, but we have to be careful of a lot of the excesses and a lot of the goofiness that can come with it. I mean, we're dealing with topics like the end of this whole present system. This is not something we, wanna, we want to take lightly. What is the title of the, the conference? Is it the Praying Church or the Prophetic Church? Con- the Prophetic Church Conference. So... Here's the thing, and I'll say this too, as to you all as a community. How many people here are not from Grace, by the way? So there's a good, there's a good, um, keep your hands raised. We're going to give you a visitor card. And No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> so that's a good number. But by and large, and I'll assume that even the visitors, that one of the values that this community has is it's a praying community. You've got the um, GHOP, by the way, which I... Um, Grace House of Prayer, which I realized when I heard that, that for those that are militant, um, you know, who are really given to prayer, they are the jihop jihadis. They're given to <laughs> jihop sounded. As soon as I heard it, I said, wait, did you say jihad? No, jihop. Um, not jihardis, jihad, jihad. <clears throat> Whether we're talking whether we're talking prophetic church or praying church, those two are one in the same. So the essence of what it means to be a prophetic people is to be a people who are rooted to the vine, who are connected to the vine. So, you know, how many people here, how many people would like to make apple pies for the Lord your whole life, just your whole life, just work hard making apple pies for the Lord. And then you get to heaven, and the Lord goes, I hate apple pies. <laughs> you know, I, the, the more that I've been sort of in uh, the world of ministry and so forth, the more that I've become convinced, and don't anyone take offense at this, do you remember the guy in high school for, I mean, I'm a Gen Xer, but I know this guy's been around for a long time, that when you're leaving the parking lot, well, I don't know, they probably don't do it much anymore as much, but, you know, boom, blah, 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 blah. And you're just like, um, he just wasted about $30 worth of rubber and just a lot of gas, and for some reason, you know, wherever you see him. I was at a, a hotel, and for some reason, some guy was just doing donuts in the parking lot for like an hour. And I was like, who, when is someone going to call the cops, and why is he still doing it? Because it was late at night, and it was like, and I was just, but this is a picture, this is a prophetic picture, and this will stay in your mind of so much of the church. We've got the accelerator to the floor, and we're just going nowhere. You know, I just tweeted this today. I'm going to read this because this just reminds me. This is a post that was made. This is in Canada, Ontario, and it's for elementary school teachers. And it's a class that they're having on inclusiveness training. I wish I could show you the picture. And so this is the Federation of Elementary School Teachers. And across it, it says L-G-G-B-T-T-T-T-I-Q-Q-A-A-P-P. This is real. So this is to, this is, now think of this. This is for elementary school teachers, kindergarten through fourth, fifth grade. And this is to teach teachers to become more inclusive and understanding of lesbian, gay, genderqueer, bisexual, demisexual, transgender, transsexual, two-spirit, intersex, queer, questioning, asexual, that's for all everyone that's been married more than 20 years, just kidding, allies, 
pansexual, and polyamorous. What? Two spirit. This is being taught. This is this is now. This is. I mean, is there any? Is there is there any reason why Satan is not called the god of this world? But I mean, it's just like you know, just talking to uh, Pastor Gary on the way in. It's just. You know, you go to a Bible school or something, and the stuff that the kids are wrestling now by the time they're in Bible school is just eons beyond what I'm only 45, but things that, you know, my generation was wrestling with and the junk and the mess and the chaos. And I look at things like that and I say, I don't think this present system has much more time left. And even at 45, I feel like, gosh, I don't have a lot of time. I don't have time to be burning rubber in the parking lot and expelling all this energy, going nowhere. I want to be someone, and I know you all want to be people, and you want to be a community that partners with God, and that, and that through doing that, you, you barely have to press the, the gas pedal, and it's warm. I had a dream years ago. I, um, I've been married now for 20 years. And um, when I first got married, I had all these sort of dreams of ministry and everything. And then, you know, life has a way of just punching you in the gut. And, you know, reality, or as the uh, child, childhood end, your fantasies merge with harsh realities, right? You know, everyone kind of goes through the dying process. And, um, but I had a dream where I was riding a bike down the middle of the street, and I was feeling like, gosh, you know, and all these cars were going by like 100 miles an hour, and, and, uh, and I was just feeling like, gosh, I'm not getting anywhere. I'm like, I'm working hard, and I'm pedaling, and, you know, all these, you know, and this is sort of how I felt, you know, all the, I would see folks that were, I mean, they had, I didn't, I just didn't have the family structure and a lot of the, the things in my life and I felt like so many people came in with so many more tools and and so forth and um, and I'm riding my bike down the street and it was it was just like taking forever and it was you know one of these dreams where I, my dreams hardly ever make sense but you know you feel like you're dreaming it all night long and um, and then all of a sudden I looked and I was off the road and all of a sudden I realized I'm not just pedaling my bike down. I'm like flying, and I look, and I'm going faster than all these other cars. And I'm like, you know, it's kind of like E.T., right? And um, when you partner with God, that's what it's like. Like suddenly you're just pedaling like you normally pedal, and the Lord accelerates our our fruit bearing, our productivity, etc., etc. But when we don't partner with God, where that guy just burning rubber in the parking lot. And again, so much of the Western church is burning so much rubber. So how do we partner with God? Well, it's very simple. One, we live lives of prayer. But if we want to be a prophetic church, a prophetic church and a praying church is one and the same. Is we don't just, you can waste time in prayer too. You can come in the prayer room and pray all day that um, the Patriots won't win the next Super Bowl. It's futile prayers. They're worthless. I'm just kidding. I'm originally from Boston. Um, because what we want to do is we want to be people who partner with God in prayer. We don't want to just pray. Like, I mean, praying is good. I mean, it's a good discipline and so forth. But we want to be people that partner with God. We want to be people that pray with discernment. And so how do you do that? Well, you are connected to the vine. Which is to say prayer is a, is a process of partnering. It's a process of listening and then praying back to him the things that he said he's, want, he's going to do and that he wants to do. It's very simple, right? So with regard to this big issue of the end times, we're going to get into some more details over the next few sessions tomorrow night and Saturday. We can get into all of the details of what's going on in Syria. What does it mean? What's going on in Iraq? What, is, what are events unfolding in Turkey right now? How, how are we as discerning believers to understand and relate to these things? What does it say in terms of where we are on the timeline? We'll get into some of that. But before we do, we have to look at the big picture. We have to look at the big picture. Understanding the end times is this simple. The Lord, actually, I want to begin here in Genesis, um, Genesis 1, because this is, that's where it starts. 
Genesis 1.1, very simple. In the beginning, God created the heavens, plural, and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. There's various words that could be used there. Void, it was, it was chaos. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the deep there is the language of, of the ocean, of the water, the deep, the dark. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So, biblically speaking... Throughout the scriptures, and this is a story, and these are motifs, these are symbols that begin in the very first verse of the Bible, and they are consistent throughout the scriptures, and then they find their culmination in the book of Revelation at the end, in the crescendo. But throughout the Bible, the language of the sea, of the ocean, of the deep, this is the realm of Satan. This is the realm of the unknown, the chaotic. It's out of man's control. That's, I mean, the ocean, you know, you can't harness it. And interestingly, what, what is here, but we don't often see it because we don't fully understand the larger backstory to this in ancient Mesopotamia and so forth, is that the throughout, because just a few, you know, chapters later, we have the serpent. Right, which is Satan, the serpent. It doesn't. He comes and he tempts Adam and Eve, and there's various pictures and children's Bibles and you know storybooks and so forth. What a lot of people don't know is that the serpent, biblically speaking, throughout the Bible, in Job and the Psalms, and then in Revelation, is actually a sea creature. And just to add another layer of weirdness, and it has seven heads. It's a dragon. It's a sea creature. It's this monster with seven heads, and it refers to uh, it a few times as Leviathan. Now, as Christians, we've often looked at these passages, again, in Job, in the Psalms of Leviathan, and we go, well, this is kind of interesting from a creation perspective. You know, there's like the behemoth, and we go, see, the Bible does talk about dinosaurs and, you know, this sort of thing. And that's probably true, but really it's using this picture of this sea creature, Leviathan. It's actually a picture of the devil. And it refers to this sea creature, Leviathan, as having heads, the heads of the sea creature. Well, it doesn't say seven until you get to Revelation. But there's actually a very common um, uh, theme that you find in some of the ancient Mesopotamian literature of this hydra, the seven-headed sea creature. And the Bible actually continues to, well, you could say the Bible used it first or where it came from is the Bible a polemic against some of this pagan literature. We won't get into that. But whenever Satan appears throughout the, the biblical story, it's always an issue of, in the beginning is this chaos, the deep, it's the ocean. You know, and I grew up, by the way, the son of a fisherman. Um, how many people here have done a, any number, a, a, any, a bit of deep sea fishing? So I grew up on the water, and I've been, you know, I was fishing from the time that I could remember and um, I remember the first time, this is a true story, the first time I ever went fishing with my dad, well, by myself, because we used to go out as a family, but my dad took me out, five years old, we went out from Cape Cod, um, out of, um, uh, I think we are out of Chatham, and we went out to what's called Stellwagen Bank, which is quite a ways off the tip of Cape Cod. This is where you see all of the humpback whales, this is because we were going tuna fishing. And... Um, and I'm with my dad, and we're driving out, and you learn as, as you learn, you know, the ocean's not just the ocean. You learn, you look out, and you see an oil slick. And, you know, fishermen go, oh, there's a school of fish over here that's feeding. And, like, there's all sorts of weird things out there in the ocean that, that you spot and you see. And even as a little kid, I was learning to kind of see these things. And we're way out. I mean, this is, I want to say, 20 miles out. I mean, it's quite a ways out. And it's in the morning, and we leave it like we leave it like two in the morning, and we start driving out. And I looked, and we're way out, and I see this big blue bubble in the water. And I was like, "What is that? Is that like a tarp floating around out here in the ocean? Because you see all kinds of debris and different things." And I was looking, and I thought it was a big blue tarp with an air bubble. And my dad's kind of he's looking over the the doghouse, and, and I'm looking at it, and we come right up on it, and just as we got on it, I realized it was a whale that was just surfaced right there. And it was not a normal humpback. I don't know. Maybe it was, but I don't think it was. 
And we literally ran right over the thing. And, um, and I would kind of sit there and hold the little handle and look over. And I was thinking, and I was like, Dad, that's a waitress drove over a whale. You know, and I kind of saw it just go under. And he said, don't tell your mother about that. <laughs> but so, you know, I grew up, even though, you know, you think, well, you grew up on the water, like you wouldn't be afraid of the ocean. Like, I'm terrified of the ocean. Like, we've pulled, there's been times where we've caught, you know, we caught a mako shark one time, and, you know, you look over and you look down into the darkness and you see these big monsters under the, you know, ocean. And it's just like, when you're this thing flapping around on the top of the water, you know, like, we're not in our element, and there's these giant things under there. Like, who knows what's under there? And they're just like this giant muscle with teeth and a brain this big, and they don't have hands, so they feel with their mouth. You know, like, you, you know, you're up there flopping around, and they're just like, hey, I wonder what that is. Oh, I think I'll just take a little nibble and see what it tastes. You know what I mean? Like, you're just, we're so out of our element. And then, like, all of a sudden, some weird thing washes up, and you're like, oh, we thought these things been dead for a thousand years. And, you know, like, there's just crazy stuff under the ocean. And this is sort of the... The picture from a biblical perspective at the beginning in Genesis 1-1, it's, it's the chaos. And then the Lord hovers over the chaos, and what does he do? He brings order. He brings order. And throughout the biblical narrative, whenever Satan shows up, it always uses the language of, of the sea, of the waters. In Revelation, he opens his mouth, and, and, he, and waters flood out of his mouth, and the armies of the Antichrist and some of these pagan armies, they are described as coming into the land like a flood. And Satan's activity is always expressed in the form of trying to bring the Lord's created order back into chaos. Does that make sense? And so how does the Lord, the Lord in the beginning brought order to the chaos, but he has promised to establish his order forever and to completely eventually cast that sea serpent, that Leviathan, into the abyss forever. Eventually, that's where this whole thing's going. But the manner in which he is, the manner in which he is bringing about his plan of redemption, of ultimate order forever, is through a series of promises. And they're called covenants. Okay, so it's through these promises that the God of creation is going to accomplish his ultimate plan, his promised plan of crushing the devil's head, crushing the works of Satan, of crushing the entire system that he has established and establishing his God's order over the earth. And his invitation to all of mankind is to participate and partner with and inherit and receive and be blessed by his order. Right? So we're going to look briefly. We don't, you know, this is the type of um, information that you could deal, you could spend weeks on looking at the covenants. But we're going to sort of go over some of the covenants because I find that, that a high percentage of Christians, we're really good at the New Testament, Sometimes, and but we're really weak at the Old Testament, and it's amazing how often Christians don't understand these foundational, central. I mean, this is really Bible 101. We don't understand the covenants. So, if you want to understand the end times, the big picture, it's very simple. God made a series of promises, He made a series of covenants. I think I've actually got this in the first slide. These promises will result in the redemption, his redemption being fulfilled. Now, the closer that we get to the fulfillment of all of these, these the crescendo of all, the, all of these promises, the more that Satan will rage. It's very simple. Satan's been angry, you know, he's been contesting this redemption of God from the beginning, but the closer that we get to the time when he knows he's about to be cast into the abyss forever, the more that he will rage. And as we'll see, the primary sort of starting point, the focal point of God's creation, whereby he will bring his order to all of the nations, is through a people called Israel. 
and through a land called Israel. And if we as Christians don't understand his plan, then we so easily set ourselves up to be the idiot in the high school parking lot. Fighting, not just, not just wasting time, but actually fighting against God. I, look, guys, I, you know, how many people here, well, you don't have to raise your hand, you get over 50, you get over 60, you get over 70, and you go, man, I don't, like, this. these decades are flying by. I want to stand before the Lord having, having you know, produced much fruit. And in this, this, you know, you read like the Kings, you read Chronicles, and it's like, you know, and then this one was born, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and then he died. And you're like, that's how life is. It's just like my life is just going to be this little notation. It, you know, it seems long when you're, when you're in pain, <laughs> when you're sick, when you're suffering, when you're, you know, punching the time clock day after day. Like life can seem long, and then you look back, and you're like, my goodness, this just flew by. I just, you know, I was just 20, 30, 40 now I'm 75. You go, what happened? And we want to be people that maximize the little bit of time that we have. We want to be people that bear much fruit. And we need to understand what the Lord's doing. If we partner with what he's doing, we will bear much fruit. If we abide in the vine, if we are connected to what he's doing, if we listen to what he's doing, we will bear much fruit. If we follow the way that a good percentage of the church is going, we will waste high percentage of our lives and, and, and oftentimes we actually find ourselves at the day of judgment having fought against the things that God promised that he would do in the earth that's a terrifying prospect good godly amazing Christians brothers and sisters are actually fighting against God because they reject some of these promises and and the things that he said he's going to do so first, let me just begin uh, defining replacement theology. Uh, we've all heard the term. Um, there's a lot of different terms for it. I, I deal with this a lot in the book, When a Jew Rules the World. My best title of all, by the way. Um, I, I always, the books always sound real inflammatory, by the way. Um, when you get into them, they're actually very measured. But um, the, all my books have titles that people cover when they're in the airport. <laughs> they're always like, I don't want to like to read your stuff on planes. There's actually a book out that, um, that I forget what it's called, but it's, it's like on, on something or other. And the subtitle is what to do when you feel like rejected, unloved. And does, any, does that ring a bell? It's a kind of a real popular book right now. And this girl was saying she was reading one of my books, and she was embarrassed to be reading it in public, so she put this other cover on my book. I was like, it's less embarrassing to be reading a book that says how, what to do when you feel unloved and rejected and like unworthy? I was like, come on. That was less embarrassing. So another term for replacement theology is supersessionism that the church has superseded Israel, replacement theology. A lot of people today in churches who try to cover what they actually believe will use terms like inclusion theology or fulfillment theology because that sounds so much better, doesn't it? You know, it's kind of like people used to say, well, I'm liberal, and then that's like has negative connotations, so now they say, I'm progressive. Just admit it. You're liberal, you know. And, you know, we change terminology to try to make it sound more innocuous or better. Well, inclusion theology, well, we all love inclusion. We love fulfillment. No, it is divorce theology, as we'll see. So what is it? Replacement theology very simply holds that God is done with Israel. Now, notice that I did not say God is done with individual Jews. Okay, they don't teach that. They say, no, Jews can join themselves to the church. But God is done with corporate Israel, with the family of Israel. He was dealing with them in the past, but he has since divorced them. He has rejected them, and he has moved on to a new people. This is what's taught. Now, again, some people, they try to tone it down, and they don't use quite as negative language, but ultimately it always boils down to the same thing, divorce theology. There is no future grace for corporate Israel, for the family of Israel. The, Lord, the present state of Israel has nothing to do with biblical prophecy, has nothing to do with God's promised plan. It's actually a huge coincidence, or you could say self-fulfilled prophecy, but God has nothing to do with that. They're just like any other nation. 
Those who espouse this theology, that's what they would teach. And the church is the new or true Israel. And, you know, that sounds so wonderful because they go, well, no, God's created a new thing and it includes Jews and Gentiles and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, there's a biblical principle which says do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. How does it feel if someone comes up and um, what's, what's your last name again, Tom? Grossman. Grossman. Um, I'm the new Grossman. Um, your family, um, unfortunately, just stumbled too many times. And so the Lord has um, replaced you with me. Now, if you'd like to become a Grossman, you're welcome to join me. Um, anytime, you know, and it's free. But I am the new Grossman. We are the new Grossman people. And you can, you, you, it would be wonderful. I would appeal to you to come and be part. You know what I'm saying? Like, you just go, like, whack, right? And yet, this is exactly what the church has basically done down through history, is we've said, no, we're the true. Because you have to understand, Israel was just unfaithful one too many times. The Lord divorced her, and he, he made himself a new bride, a pure, undefiled, spotless bride. Because that describes us perfectly, doesn't it? Thank you, Lord. Your mercies are new every morning, except for Israel. They're new for me, but, I mean, it's just, it's bizarre. It's bizarre that we've actually embraced this. Here's a quote. I'm going to read this. this is from a book called Jesus vs. Jerusalem. Now, this is a guy who espouses replacement theology, and he's very straightforward with it. Not all those who espouse it are as straightforward. Um, and listen to this quote. This is why I call it divorce theology. He says, The old Jewish people were not merely exiled from their kingdom someday to return. He's talking about 70 A.D., when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, and over the next 50 years, the Jews were exiled among the nations. He's talking about the catastrophe of that whole first and second century period. He says, no, the old Jewish people, no, the old Jewish people. Like, how do you like it when someone calls, oh, yeah, you're the old Grossman. <laughs> the old Jewish people were not merely exiled from their kingdom someday to return. No, this time the kingdom was taken from them and given to the true nation, bearing the fruits thereof. Now, there's a sliver of truth there in that that particular generation, the majority were, in fact, you know, Jerusalem was destroyed and they were exiled, which was the fulfillment of some of the covenant curses of the Mosaic covenant, because the majority had rejected not just Jesus, not just Christ, but rejected God's laws, and they were exiled. There was a chastisement on that generation. But as Paul tells us very clearly in Romans 11, that hardening, that, that falling away, it was partial and it was temporary. Okay, It was not permanent. This is so critical. Yes, there was a chastisement. There was an exile. But it was partial and it was temporary. So he says, um, it was given to the true nation bearing the fruits thereof. Christ created a new bride. Why would Christ desire to return to the whore he has cast aside and divorced when he has a pristine bride descending from heaven, clothed in righteousness and uncorrupted by idolatry? Because the church is so uncorrupted by idolatry. He doesn't. He left that whore riding her patron, the beast of Rome, and the great mother of harlots suffered the judgment of her whoredom. She was divorced and disinherited. The inheritance now belongs to the bride. So we could read quotes like this all day long. We find them um, from the very beginning of the church. The church very quickly fell into Gentile arrogance, which is to say that we as pagans, if we're Gentiles, if you're a Gentile at some point in your family history, if you're a new believer, you were at one time a pagan. If you're a multi, you know, you're third generation Christian, your family at one time were pagans. And we've been welcomed in by grace to participate in this program that the Lord began with Israel. We get to be part of it, um, but that's very different than saying we've come in, we've taken over. But from the very early on, the church embraced Gentile arrogance, and they said, we replaced you, and it has been a plague that has filled the church from the very beginning, and I understand that uh, Gary recently did a series where he touched on some of these things. Most Christians are completely out of touch with how brutal the church has been theologically and in very real practical ways to the Jewish people down throughout history, 
And we wonder why Jews don't like to listen to us when we try to lecture them and teach them about the truth. And they go, really? Really? The audacity? Do you have any, uh, you know, any understanding of what you have done to us down through history? And most Christians don't. Jews are very familiar with the history. Most Christians don't. In fact, a lot of times even just mentioning this, Christians will get upset and go, oh, it might have been a couple people here and there. You know, no, it was pretty darn consistent throughout church history that we espouse ideas like this and then we carry through on actions that logically carry through from this. I call it the deadly logic of replacement theology because it's very simple. Once I say, you know, Tom, basically God doesn't really like you and um, I, sh- I shouldn't even use this as an analogy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Let's just make someone up. Is there any Myrons in the room? Um, let's just say Myron, you know, God doesn't like you, and he's done with you, he's divorced you and your family, he's rejected you. It's only a very small step until I will stop liking Myron if I'm claiming to be a follower of God. That's the deadly logic. Once you say God's divorced that whore, then action begins to follow. And this is exactly what the church has done. The, Lord, the church said the Lord has judged you because of your unfaithfulness. He's punishing you among the nations. That's the will of God. And now we are going to participate with the will of God. And in fact, this was the question theologically among Christians throughout Europe. Is they go, how are we supposed to treat the Jew? Because is the Lord trying to chastise them and punish them and, 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 and spank them back into obedience? And if so, should we partner with God? Or should we be gentle to them and allow God to punish them? How should we relate to them? And this became known as the Jewish question. And so when Hitler comes along, now Hitler was not a Christian in any way, shape, or form, but we need to understand that the groundwork had been paved by people like all sorts of Christians, including Martin Luther. So when Hitler comes along and he says, I'm going to implement the final solution, it was the final solution to the Jewish question that the church had been wrestling through for hundreds of years. And his solution was, no, we just need to wipe them out. And he was actually piggybacking on some incredibly, incredibly hateful statements that Martin Luther had made. And if this offends or you know, upsets anybody, trust me, work through the history. Face it, because you can't, we can't repent of it and work through it until we're, until we're familiar with it. Here's a statement from N.T. Wright, Tom Wright. He's considered by many to be uh, the world's leading New Testament scholar right now. Um, He says this. He says, To suggest, therefore, that as Christians we should support the state of Israel because it's the fulfillment of prophecy is in quite a radical way to cut off the branch on which we are sitting. In other words, the branch that we're sitting on is the theology of replacement, we've replaced them. And if we then say we have to support them because they are prophetic is to acknowledge that God still has a plan with them, which is to acknowledge that we have not replaced them, and it's to cut off the very branch upon where we're sitting. So it's actually a, 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 um, it's a, it's a violation, um, it's a betrayal, according to N.T. Wright, of ourselves to support Israel. Because according to N.T. Wright, we stand based on the fact that we've replaced them. Again, this is, this is not fringe, strange teaching that's floating around out there. This permeates probably half of the body of Christ. And today in seminaries, particularly among many of the, you know, the younger uh, generations, this is very trendy. Um, this, is, this will fill the pulpits and the podiums in the churches in five years from now. You listen to a lot of the seminary professors and stuff, this is what they're teaching. Um, this is, you know, how many people raised their hand? You said, I, I read Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth. Well, a lot of the younger folks go, yeah, my dad read Late Great Planet Earth, and he was always flipping out about the end times and storing food in the basement and panicking about every news story. And they go, we're moving on to a much more enlightened, sort of nuanced, more educated uh, perspective than some of these, you know, Hal Lindsey, Dallas Theological Seminary kind of, that's the attitude. There's a condescension. Every generation does it. And we always swing the pendulum way too far in the other direction, right? So then I have a definition of restorationism. Restorationism is a term that I've 
tried to coin. It's been used in various ways, even by some cults, so we need to be careful. But the point, the, the, the meaning that I pour into the term is this, is that God is going to restore the kingdom of Israel. God is going to restore um, the throne of David. He is going to fulfill all of his promises. He's going to restore the Garden of Eden. He's going to restore the kingdom of Israel and sort of mix it all up together in some Edenic, glorified, Davidic kingdom that's much better than we can fathom or imagine, but the Lord is in the process of restoring. Jesus' Jewish audience, who are thoroughly Old Testament literate, would have never understood it to be any, any different. Now, we begin with the Abrahamic covenant. This is the covenant that all of the other covenants are built upon. And again, I've been shocked to the degree to which so many Christians are. You go, what's the Abrahamic covenant? And they have various ideas. They're like, um, I will bless those that bless thee. You go, well, that's kind of close, but no cigar. Genesis 15, 1 through 4. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. This is before the Lord changed his name to Abraham. In a vision, the Lord says, don't fear, Abram. I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. So he, he picks a pagan from out of the sea of pagans, and he calls a man. This is how the Lord says, I'm going to restore all of creation. He begins with the weak, the simple, the mundane. He just chooses a guy, he calls him. He says, listen, he speaks to him. He says, I'm going to give you a great reward. And he goes, now this is the mindset of those in ancient times. He goes, how can I receive the reward? Because I don't have any children. We're like, reward? When can I eat it? You know, how can I spend it? And he's immediately thinking, how can I receive it and pass it on to my progeny? He goes, I don't have any children. And he goes, the only thing that I, the only person I have is this guy named Eleazar. He's a servant. He was born in my house, but he's really not my son. He's not my offspring. And the Lord says, no, listen, this guy's not going to be your heir, but someone who's going to come forth from you will be your heir. So now the Lord's making a promise. I'm going to give you a, ch a child. I'm going to give you a son, an heir. Verse 5, and I love this. He took him outside. The Lord took Abram outside. And he says, now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. He said to him, so shall your descendants be. So he looks up at this. Again, no light pollution. You know, back, you know, when you can see the stars, you can see the Milky Way, you can see just so many. And he goes, count, if you can count them, that's how many your descendants will be. You're not just going to have one son. You're going to have a multitude. And he he compares it also to the sand of the seashore. Abram, verse 6, believed the Lord. And it's not just, you know, I intellectually, mentally assent, yes, what you say is accurate. Abram trusted God. He put his trust in God. And the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. And the Lord said to him, I'm the Lord. I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees, arguably the area of modern-day Iraq, and I'm going to give you this land. So this is the Lord beginning this process of his promised plan. I'm going to give you this land. Why land? Why, like, why does it start with a piece of property? Like, God's the God of the universe. Why does he just begin with a little piece of real estate? I go, I probably wouldn't have done it that way. That's why, one of the many reasons why I'm not God. He said, oh, Lord God, how will I know that I will possess it? And then the Lord says this, okay, this is the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 9, bring me a three-year-old heifer. Bring me a three-year-old female goat. Bring me a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. Two birds, a goat, a ram, and a cow. How many people here have ever slaughtered a cow? One. How many people here have skinned a deer? A handful. How many people here have ever strangled a dog? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Um, I was in, uh, I was in um, Kurdistan uh, last fall, and it was the time when the, the Muslims slaughter a cow or something, and they'd right out there on the patio, they you know, tied the cow up, put him down, and cut his head off, and all the little kids are there, and then they skinned him and gutted him and did, you know, and, um, you know, this is, this, is, uh, this is the real deal. You know, you know it. When you start skinning a deer or slaughtering a cow or something, like, you know, what, you know, this is not something you can just casually do. Like, it impacts you. There's blood and this stench, and, you know, it's a gory, horrific thing. 
And so the Lord has these animals that he, he, he brings. And now skip forward verse 12 and then 17. Oh, wait. Yeah, oh, it says, And then he brought all of these to him, and he cut them in two. And he laid each half opposite the other. He didn't cut the birds. I guess I probably strangled the birds, broke their necks. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. So now picture, I threw a picture in there. So picture this. The Lord has this full cow cut in half. And... Um, so, you know, the head on one side, the tail on the other side, I assume it was front to back. I'm sure he didn't split the cow down. There. I don't know. Um, and then you got the same thing with the goat and the ram and the birds. And there's this path in between these bloody, gory, in the heat. The birds of prey are coming down, stinking, filthy, gory animals. This is what the Lord, this is how the Lord commanded. The Lord is an incredibly, um, I'm going to use the term liturgical. Um, God, which is he does things through object lessons. And he uses these object lessons to embed them into our minds. That's why I told the story of the guy burning rubber in the parking lot. Um, pictures to embed reality, spiritual realities into our minds. And the Lord did this for a reason. It's this incredibly graphic. And again, most Westerners, we have lost, this is why I say how many people have skinned a deer. We've lost complete touch with animal sacrifice, or even, you know, where do you think your beef comes from? From the supermarket, you know. I mean, now, I guess they are. They're going to start, like, growing animal cells or something. I don't know, whatever. But, you know, throughout the Old Testament, this was just standard fare, you know. If you're going to eat meat, you're going to cut that thing's throat. Um, I won't tell you the story of the time that my friends and I, he invited me over and we slaughtered these goats. To, we were going to eat them, but, I mean, it was like... It's horrible. It was terrible. They were screaming. The kids were crying. We didn't do it right. Um, we tried, but you know, it was, it was, it's, it's the real deal. So, uh, verse twelve: As the sun was going down, a deep sleep falls upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness falls upon him. Skipping forward, uh, after the sun had set, it was very dark. Behold, there appears, and it just says this very weird: a smoking oven and a flaming torch. Now, don't think oven, because we all think like this like stainless steel Viking range. No. There's smoke and there's fire. I don't know exactly what it was. Smoke and fire appears, and it passes between the pieces. It passes down the row in between these animals. And then verse 18 through 20, on that day the Lord made a covenant. He made a promise to Abram, saying this. To your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river to the river Euphrates. Now, there's four places in the Old Testament where the Lord defines the promised land. We won't get into all of that, but I do have a picture of it. Uh, we'll just we'll stop right there for now. What was the Lord doing? Why did he have Abram cut these animals in half? Why did he walk down the middle when he made this promise? It's very simple. The God who made Saturn and the Milky Way, and the nebula, and the black holes, and the yellow dwarfs, and the stars. I mean, the God who made the universe is, is appearing. He's manifesting in the form of fire and smoke. And he's saying, if I don't fulfill what I'm promising to you right now, Abram, may I die like these animals. That's, that's what was, that's, that was the commitment that he was making. And covenants throughout the Old Testament are always like this. There's... There's, you know, a kind of, I put my life and my future in your hands kind of thing. And the Lord was saying, this is what I'm going to. Now, how many of you believe that God is faithful? How many of you believe that when God makes a promise, he is going to fulfill it? And when he makes a promise like this, it's like it is, it is done. Now, what a lot of Christians do is they go, well, the new covenant replaces the old covenant. And you go, which old covenant? Because there's multiple covenants in the Old Testament. What are you talking about? They go, yeah, the Abraham covenant is done away, the new covenant. You go, no, the new covenant is built upon the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant. So I'm going to skip forward here for the sake of time. Genesis 17, verse 8. 
the Lord says, the Lord then reiterates throughout the Old Testament so many times he reiterates, he restates, he clarifies, he restates the promises. The Lord says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. So it's forever. It's not temporary. It's not something that was superseded or replaced or abrogated or done away with because the new covenant replaces it. No, this is the Lord says between me and you and your descendants forever. And I will be a God to you. This is it's much more than just the piece of land. He says, I'm going to be a God to you and to your descendants after you. I will be their God. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be your God. So there's many, many places that we can look at that. Real quick, there's a map. hit the map. So there's some crazy maps you'll see sometimes on the internet. Skip forward a little bit. Mm-hmm. And they'll include the whole Middle East because it says as far as the river Euphrates. Well, that's true in the north, the Euphrates down through Syria. But it doesn't go all the way over to Iraq. This is probably a much more accurate picture of the promised land. It does include all of Lebanon, the West Bank, what's called the West Bank today, part of Jordan, good part of Syria, all the way down to the Sinai. And it may include a little bit more, give or take of that. But that's loosely the promised land, um, according to, again, the few different passages and numbers in Ezekiel. Now, we're going to highlight just some of the the highlights of the Abrahamic covenant, a summary. The Abrahamic covenant was made to Abraham, and then the Lord reiterates it to his son Isaac and Jacob, who becomes Israel, and to their descendants, plural, after you. The Lord just said it Um, in Genesis. He says it in Psalms, plural, descendants, your family. I'm going to give you this land. The primary emphasis of the promise concerned a literal piece of land. This is not spiritual. It's not metaphorical. It's a piece of land. That's why he defines it. He goes, it's to this river. It's to the borders over here. You know, unless you want to go, well, the border of northern Israel mystically represent No. The river of Egypt to here. You know, I mean, it's like it's a blueprint. I mean, it's a, not a blueprint. It's a, you know, boundary markers. The promise, and this is key. It was unilateral and unconditional. Abram was asleep when the Lord made the promise. I don't I even fully understand how it was recorded. It was not like, Abram, if you do this, then I'm going to give you the land. He said, I'm going to do this. It was a unilateral promise, unconditional. There was no conditions. He said, don't do this or else this isn't going to... He just said, I'm going to do it. Otherwise, let me die like these animals. The promise is ongoing, it's irrevocable, it has not been done away with, and it's everlasting. Very simple. Okay, then we get to the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant came um, 430 years after the Abrahamic Covenant, according to Paul. And unlike the Abrahamic Covenant, it was conditional and it was an agreement between two parties. Israel stood at the foot of the mound and they stood before the Lord and, they, and the Lord said, If you obey me, these good things will happen. If you don't, then these bad things will happen. You'll be spit out, you'll be cast among the nations, you'll become the prey of the nations, you'll be scattered. You know, all these bad things will happen. And they said, We agree. It was a, it was a bilateral agreement between two parties. It was conditional based on their obedience. And these were the promises, the rules, the, you know, the, the requirements to remain in the land and possess it. He goes, the Lord goes, this is your land. Whether you're in or out, it doesn't matter. I've given it to you and your descendants. But if you want to remain in the land, here's the conditions. And they said, we agree. And it was a party specifically between God and Israel. So it was not an agreement with Gentiles. It was a very specific agreement. And it was defined by, if you, then I. If you don't, then I will do this. Abrahamic covenant had none of that. None of this, if you, then I. So we're going to skip forward to the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7, verse 10 through 11. The Lord now is speaking to King David. And he says this to David. He says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. Now notice, the Lord reiterates the Abrahamic covenant. For my people Israel, I'm going to make a place for them, and I will plant them. In other words, they will be permanently planted, and they will live in their own place. They will not be disturbed. The wicked will not afflict them anymore. Um, And then he says, I will give you rest from all of your enemies. 
verse 11 through 16. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up, for, I will raise up your descendant after you. Now, this is not just um, Solomon who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Here's how we know it's not Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom, David, will be established before me forever. And your throne upon which your descendant will sit will be established forever. So now the Lord says, I'm not just going to give Abraham and his descendants a piece of land. I'm going to make it into a kingdom. And I'm going to give them a king. And he's going to be a descendant of David. And he's going to sit on the throne of David forever. So now it's expanded upon. It's not abrogated. It's not done away with. It is expanded upon, and, and it's, it blossoms. It's not just, well, hey, you get this field. It's going to be a kingdom, and the son of David is going to sit on that throne forever, and the Lord's going to establish this kingdom. So now we skip forward to the new covenant. Most people don't know that the new covenant is spoken of by all three of the major prophets, by Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. The first um, is in Isaiah 59, 20 through 21. The Lord says, a redeemer will come to Zion. Zion was the hill where David's throne was, just, just next to Mount Moriah, next to the Temple Mount. And to those who turn from transgression in Israel, in Jacob, declares the Lord, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you, my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor your offspring's offspring, says the Lord from now on and forevermore. So first the Lord says, I'm going to give you a piece of land. The Lord says, I'm going to make it into a kingdom. And in, with the Mosaic, he goes, and, and you have to obey me if you want to remain in there. But they keep disobeying. They get spit out. And then the Lord brings them back. And the Lord says, this is the covenant I'm going to do. I'm going to put my spirit into you. And then you will be obedient to me. And it's no longer going to be a, come, you know, teach your neighbor how to be obedient. I'm actually going to empower you to live in obedience so that you will remain in the land forever. I'm going to put my very heart into you, put my words into your mouth. So Isaiah uses that language. Then in Jeremiah 31, verse 1, and then skipping forward to 31 and 32. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the Gentiles, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That's who the new covenant is made with. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, i.e. the Mosaic covenant, in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Although I was a husband to them. The Lord goes, no, it's not going to be like the Mosaic Covenant. It's going to be a new covenant whereby they will be empowered to be fully obedient because my spirit will be within them. Then verse 33 through 34, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their heart. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor, come, know the Lord. No, they will all know me. Why? Because I will be in them. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. The Lord is not done with Israel because this hasn't been fulfilled yet. It's very simple. Then in Ezekiel, finally, 36, 20 through 22 through 28, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, to who? The house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord God, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands that they've been exiled. I mean, you talk about Israel being an amazing fulfillment of biblical prophecy. I'm going to take you from the lands. I will gather you and bring you back into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness, from all of your idols. Tel Aviv today, this is not to Israel bash, but it's the reality. Half of the Jewish population lives in the city of Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv has now basically replaced San Francisco as the gay capital of the world. Um, it's one of the highest percentage of singles in the, in the in cities in the world in terms of unmarrieds. Um, you go there now, parts of it feel like Las Vegas. There's these little like um, call girl like 
cards for prostitutes with basically pornography with numbers just all over the ground, nightclubs, strip clubs, drug addle, you know. Um, Israel, yes, it's God's holy land, but the majority, as it was in Paul's day, there's a remnant of faithful believers, but the majority are living in disobedience. The majority are living in disobedience. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart. Put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my, my ordinances. You will live in the land. The new covenant is intricately connected to the Abrahamic land promise. You cannot separate the two. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. You will be my people. I will be your God. Why did God call Abram, turn him into a family, turn him into a nation, bring forth a Messiah? Why did he call Israel? Because he loves everybody. God so loved the world that he chose Israel. God loves the Arabs. He loves the Palestinians. He loves the Americans, a high percentage of them. He loves, just kidding. He loves the Canadians. He loves the Papua New Guineans. He loves the Koreans. And therefore, he called Israel. And his plan, his method, his program to redeem all of creation is this. He begins with a platform. He begins with a launching pad. And that's the promised land. And he brings forth a people. He gives them his statutes. He gives them his laws. He brings forth the Messiah. And through the Messiah, all of us dumb pagans receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he lives within us. And now we worship the God of Israel, the God who's making this promise. And here's the bizarre thing. In order, to, and this is a whole other subject, but in order to bring all of the dumb pagans in, the Lord says, I'm going to temporarily, partially harden Israel until the fullness of all you dumb Gentiles come in. I say you, I mean we. And then I'm going to turn back and save all of Israel. His mission impossible. You know, because down through history, the majority have rejected Yeshua, the Messiah. He goes, no, it's not always going to be that way. The Lord's going to do a great thing in these last days. So, to bring this to a close, the Lord has a plan to redeem, not just save our souls. He didn't just come to save our souls so that we can escape this shell and to go to heaven forever in the clouds. He came to redeem our, our flesh. Now, it's going to be much better than this um, rotting, aging, sagging, dying thing. It's going to be Immortal, clothed with immortality, glorified, but yet we're going to have bodies. We're going to have sinews and muscles and eyeballs in their sockets. We can smell. We can eat. This is a whole other subject. He came to redeem all of creation, and not just Israel, but all of the nations. And we as a prophetic people, we as a praying people, our mandate in this age is to understand the Lord's unfolding promise plan of redemption and partner with it, which means that as we go forward to the nations, that even as we labor among Arab nations, we're laboring because we are yearning for the day when all Israel will come in. And there's this very Israel-centric story that has not been done away with. And we get to be part of this. Um, <clears throat> We don't want to be people who are fighting against the central focal point of his entire promise plan of redemption. I, you know, I, I believe the Lord is rich in mercy. And I know a lot of great, amazing brothers and sisters, teachers, pastors who embrace replacement theology, replace, they embrace amillennialism and so many of these other things. And I... I um, I know that the Lord is abounding in mercy. And so my point is not to, you know, condemn anybody who has wrong ideas. But I want to be someone who at the end of this very brief opportunity 
I want to be someone who bears tremendous fruit, and I want to be part of, and I want to be partner with people who understand what the Lord is doing and also want to bear tremendous fruit. And again, it's not a hard thing to partner with God. You just look out and see what God is doing, then you participate, you partner, you start praying back to him the things that he wants to do, and then you begin laboring to accomplish the things that he wants to do. And we'll be absolutely amazed when, you know, just you're just pedaling along and all of a sudden you look and you're just literally flying down the road. That's what it's like to partner with the Lord. So amen and amen. I don't know how to, uh, at 9 o'clock, I don't know how you want to wrap it up. Let me pray and then if you want to do anything from there. Father, we just thank you for this um, introduction. We want to be discerning people. We want to understand what you're doing in the earth. We want to have clarity, to understand what you're doing, to know what to do. This world is increasingly being overwhelmed with chaos. Satan is raging throughout the nations. We want to partner with you, Lord. We ask right now, for the next few days, that your hand would be extended over us, that you would do something here through um, just the weak, feeble efforts of opening up your word and peering into your word and talking about these things uh, as your people, that you would do something and that you would establish something in this house, in this city, in this region that would go out to the nations, that would impact the nations in a profound way that we would look back and we would see even the things that unfolded over this weekend, the lives touched, the ideas, the, the vision for the future that's imparted, that it would bear fruit unto eternity. We want to be a people who partner with what you're doing throughout the nations. And so we, in our just weak, simple way, we say, yes, Lord, use us. Open our hearts, open our spirits to receive just a drop of your heart. A drop of your heart would hit our heart and change us forever. We thank you for these things, and we commit them to you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Let's give Joel a hand, would you? Let's all stand. Since this is a school night, we do want to prompt here and how we close. We'd like to ask some of the Jihad leadership team to be available for, to pray for anyone who would like some prayer. But I'd like to pray one more thing in addition to what Joel prayed. So close your eyes if you would, and I'd just put your hand on your heart. And Lord, we thank you for what was shared with us tonight, the truth of what your heart, where your heart really is, and this foundation for really where we're going. And Lord, we ask you, I just pray, Lord, for those perhaps that they were struck by this tonight, unsettled by this, perhaps rebuked in a sense, kind of gently by you, that they were thinking wrong about Israel and your future. I just, Lord, we just pray that you'd enable every one of us to really partner with you. If some need to repent tonight, that we just easily respond like, Lord, I was wrong. Forgive me for seeing it wrong. And Lord, we want to, we want to see it right so we can partner with you. So give us a spiritual understanding, Lord, all of us. And we pray that we build a build. I pray Joel will be able to really build on this now with liberty. And you'll be able to take us to a place where, as a church, we'll be able to really partner with you greater than we ever had before. So, Lord, we just commit this night to you. And we pray, Lord, you'd have your way in our lives. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Everybody says, amen. If you like prayer, come on up. Some G-Hop leadership team will be available to pray for you. God bless you guys. And have a good night.